Today we're looking at Top Secret from 1984. It's written, produced and directed by Jim Abrahams, David Zucker and Jerry Zucker, the comedy team behind Kentucky Fried Movie, Airplane, Naked Gun, Hot Shots and Scary Movie. The story, such as it is, has an American musician drawn into a Cold War plot involving a nuclear scientist, the resistance, a love triangle, kidnapping and assassinations, all behind the Iron Curtain in the former East Germany. So where where did you see this? It must obviously have been like mid-80s. Yeah, I think whenever it was released on VHS, me and a bunch of mates, we had a little video club by this point, and it was one of those that we just latched onto and loved. It was the per- you know maybe 11 or 12 and the perfect age for all the kind of you know juvenile humour and comedy <laughs> slapstick moments and the little sort of you know boobs and farts and all of that sort of Abraham Zucker stuff where it just really resonated um and then it's one of those that I've gone back to as like a late teens and in my early 20s and you start to see the kind of filmmaking technique and it is you know or lack thereof (laughs) oh no I think some of the some of the (laughs) what some (laughs) of the techniques in it I think are fantastic you know like the the jumping straight into the scene where it's running backwards you know yeah that's that's like the one standout scene though some of it is like really quite inept well, i thought that was the thing that was its kind of saving grace that yeah the story you know i sort of dressed it up as this sort of big cold war conspiracy but it's really clunky and the performances are really wooden but you know the technique i love the uh all the visual gags and yeah yeah that's the stuff that i thought keeps it alive i think i must have seen it around the same time i don't know if i've seen it since it was definitely like a, a mid 80s vhs rental I remember i watched it at some friend's house and it's like oh yeah people who made airplane because everyone had seen airplane by that yeah point. sure I, I even saw that in the cinema when it came out and yeah yeah and it was amazing and then i don't think i've seen it since i really don't i can't think of a situation where i would have come across it since i haven't owned it and I'd kind of forgotten about it until you mentioned it for this. Yeah, but I, I found, like, I watched it, you know, I, maybe I cheated. I watched it with my kids and they were giggling all the way through it. So you sort of, uh, for me, it kind of reinforced its longevity, just seeing them two chortling and <laughs> guffawing it. Like this, some of this really silly gags, you know, in the third act where... Uh, chocolate mousse punches the german guard off the top of the castle and he smashes (laughs) into a thousand pieces on the ground like that got proper belly laughs on my sofa so i was just like this film has stood the test of time yeah we we watched it my wife and i watched it you know for the first viewing for this and kind of it takes a little while to warm up but when it gets going it just doesn't stop and we were just all over the place for it and then (laughs) third time around i actually watched it because it, you know, it has its fair share of bad gags, and it has it has some for me some extremely weak moments, which I just would have hacked out. Yeah, but sure. I made I actually made a paper list. Look, excellent, bad, and appalling gags, and you know, <laughs> the excellent list takes up two and a bit pages. Yeah, yeah. And the bad is just kind of like five things, and appalling is three, which is basically the music numbers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just an amazing hit rate of joke after joke after joke. <laughs> yeah, it's of all good, isn't it? It's kinds. really solid. I watched Naked Gun a couple of months ago just to sort of see how it stood up. And it was really dull, really slow. And with only a couple of gags, you know, it's like a gag every sort of 15 minutes. So you're just really? sat there. But yeah, and a lot of the set pieces are really overwrought as well. So yeah, yeah coming back to this, I was like, oh no, I've, I've picked a turkey. Matt's going to go mental. <laughs> um, and I was just surprised at how funny it was still. You know, I think, yes, Val Kilmer's pretty one note all the way through it. But it's not about <laughs> It's not about the story, is it? It's just about a load of good gags. I'm hesitant in discussing this 
to, to let it turn into just describing the gags all the way through. So I think if we if we backtrack a bit and have a look at Zucker, Abrams and Zucker, I mean, have you followed their their progress? I sort of lost lost touch with them after about 1990 or 91 or something. Yeah, I'd seen Hot Shots. I saw those. Being a Rambo fan, I'd seen, uh, you know, the, the parody with uh, Hot Shots and Hot Shots Part Duh. And I think once they got into sort of pastiching other movies, that's kind of where I, I lost interest. You know, I, maybe I saw a bit of scary movie on Netflix or something, but I certainly haven't kept up with any of that stuff. But I liked, you know, Airplane. I don't know if I saw the sequel it's the space shuttle one. Oh, maybe. Has it got Shatner in it? Yeah, it's got one of the best visual gags of all time with Shatner in, which I'm not going to spoil. Is it the door gag? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I have seen that. Yeah. yeah. I I sort of remember them kind of spreading out into the film business throughout the 80s, but it's only when I kind of look them up and, and Wikipedia has a handy um, chart uh, with tick boxes next to each film showing their involvement in it. But they did all kind of branch out into into mainstream movies and more kind of traditional comedy and storytelling. Didn't Jerry Zucker, didn't he do Ghost? Yeah, yeah. And you've also got um, Jim Abrams did Big Business. Three of them did Ruthless People between them. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, before they kind of went back to doing just kind of spoof movies, they, they did kind of branch out and have some, some hits with regular movies. Yeah, okay. Just to prove they could do it. Have you seen Kentucky Fried Movie then? Have you kind of gone back and watched that? Yeah, uh, not recently. A friend of mine, Rob, he was like obsessed with it. And so I watched it on his recommendation. And again, it, you know, I thought it was pretty, pretty decent. But it is kind of just a load of skits strung together. That is, it's not a proper film, is it? I've never managed to finish it. I, I found it on DVD in a charity shop. And thought, oh, I've always wanted to see this. And this is yeah, yeah. You know, probably the only chance I'll, I'll ever get to, to get a copy. And I started watching it, and it's just like, not a single laugh. <laughs> Nothing at all. Crickets, tumbleweeds. And oh, I gave it half an hour, and it was just like, ah, oh, no. And it's John Landis as well, so I just couldn't get into it. And then I was watching an interview with them doing research for this, which showed a clip from it, which I hadn't seen, which again was just like, but this is terrible. <laughs> I just don't get it. I remember the poster from, for kentucky fried movie being in all of the video shops when video shops first opened all right it was, it was one of those posters that was everywhere you know with the big uh converse trainer and all that stuff flapping mm. around inside of it but yeah so they go from this kind of like comedy theater background into making the movie with john landis and then airplane and there's an interesting bit in that interview as well where they're saying that that nobody at the studio understood the script and understood how it was going to come together and it was only when they'd started shooting and had the the don't call me shirley scene and then sure. yeah they they showed the rushes for that and the executives were all in the room and they you know, the exec phoned them up and said i kind of get what you're going for now all right, yeah, right. i've got it yeah it's a classic isn't it airplane you know they really get away with that it's i think it's perfect i think it's the, their best <laughs> film and it, it works in ways that this one doesn't which i think we'll get to a bit later on yeah and i guess after police squad was just a one series that wasn't renewed and there was this which was their kind of big movie comeback that kind of fizzled didn't it in terms of yeah. box office and yeah i don't even know if it had much of a life on vhs afterwards mm. but it's one of those ones that everyone's seen on vhs that's that's where the cult's built up isn't it yeah but do you think it has a cult this one i always find it's i i sent a copy to a friend of mine when i was talking about doing it for this podcast and he would just like reply back Thanks for sending me that. It was shit. <laughs> well, that's the thing. That's what a cult. That's what a genuine cult movie is. It's where it's where 
you know, it finds its perfect niche. If you look up Top Secret on YouTube, there's hundreds of people who put all their favourite clips up there. Virtually every single joke is exerted and put up on YouTube, <laughs> right, okay. and not by the same people. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think I think it's got a following. I'm dying to get into all the people involved. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a pretty impressive list of uh, crew, isn't it? It's gobsmacking. So there, I couldn't find much documentation about the making of, but it was clear it was it was shot at Pinewood, which is flagged up in a in a little visual gag where they're showing a map of England and Europe, and there's a little yeah, dot yeah. saying Pinewood on the England. <laughs> Here's the thing, like. You've got an amazing roll call of talent involved, but and I'm sort of paraphrasing somebody else's observation about a movie called Winter Kills, which I read recently, by William Rickert. It's like a paranoia thriller that was made in 1978, 1980, and it's got this incredible roster of talent. The cast has got Sterling Hayden, Jeff Bridges, Anthony wow. Perkins. It just goes on I'm and in. on and this on. This sounds incredible. It's got f- photography by Vilmos Sigmund. All right, wow. And it, yeah, it's just, but the, the thing is, it's not that great. And you have to realise that, you know, sometimes these amazing kind of combinations of talent come together because everyone's available and everyone needs to get paid at some point. Yeah, sure. And I do kind of get that feeling with this movie that they're bringing this production to England and, you know, like, you've got, like, production designer Peter Lamont who's done some (laughs) stunning, huge-scale stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Lamont brothers worked on all of the Bonds, didn't they? I think I made a note. It was something like... All the bonds from For Your Eyes Only up to Casino Royale. I mean, that's a run, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. As well as, like you said, Aliens, True Lies, Titanic. <laughs> I watched Aliens again the other night for the first time in a while. And it's just, you know, remarkable bit of production design. Yeah, it's, it's pretty pretty it's decent so, bit of work. There, so coherent. So I love all the miniatures as well. That stuff looks great. Mm. Christopher Chalice, DOP, who's yeah, you know yeah. he's done some great-looking movies, Dandy and Aspic, and Two for the Road, and um, mainstream movies like The Deep. He's worked with Michael Powell. Yeah, who's one of the Woodfalls guys, wasn't he? Yeah. There was two editors listed, but it seems like the main editor was a lady called Francois Beno, and she worked with Costa Gravas, um, Melville on Army of Shadows. She oh, perfect. With, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. She's prepped, fully prepped. With Chimino on um, Year of the Dragon and the Sicilian uh, Polanski, she cut um, the Tenant. So yeah, she's got a solid pedigree coming into this. Do you think this is like right at the front of her showreel? <laughs> I don't know. There's music by Maurice Jarre, who's even then was a legendary composer. But you just know, and it's funny. I've read a couple of books by editors this in this last year. And two different editors have had experiences with with major composers where oh, yeah. you know you'll you'll sit down and they'll have a meeting and the composers will stroke their chins and say, <laughs> "Yes, yes, I I th- I think I can." I, the ideas are coming together, and the editor's just he says he's just sitting there knowing that he'll go back to his office and pull a pre-prepared piece of music off the shelf and say, "Just mm-hmm. dust it off and say, right, we'll use this one." Yeah, that's it. This and that's found definitely home. the case in this movie. So you've got Maurice Jarre, but you know he's just pulled a, a, a few kind of like library tracks off his shelf to yeah, use. It's the action track, the romantic track. Yeah. and They bear no reference to what's going on on screen, really. It's just kind of mm. mood music. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Omar Sharif turns up for a few scenes. Yeah, yeah. But the fact is, none of them are really doing their best work here. <laughs> no, of course not, no. And it's kind of like, you do realise that, you know, when... when when Hollywood comes to town, and if you're if you're available, yeah, I'll I'll do that, and maybe something yeah. better will be along. Yeah, what's it paying? Exactly. I mean, Peter Lamont is the is the biggest surprise in this because I think that one of the film's worst failings is that it does look pretty shoddy and and 
cheap. Yeah, I don't know. There's the scene in the um the ballroom at the gay schlufen looks really sumptuous and lush, but yeah, the rest of it does look really clunky. <laughs> but I thought that's that's what they're going for. That slightly sort of cheap and cheerful. Uh, those what do they call them? Those Hollywood movies that they just used to churn out. Yeah, Studio B movie pictures. Yeah. yeah, that's it. I think they've sort of gone for that, haven't they? It it doesn't help the movie. You think the thing for me, I think what was so off-putting for a lot of people is that it's kind of a spoof of the kind of movies that people didn't like to watch at the time. I mean, I'm sort of putting myself in a 1980s mainstream audience headspace, particularly young people who would go to a comedy. I'm thinking nobody really wants to watch something that looks authentically like a bad war movie shot in Britain on the cheap. I think that's quite off-putting. And I think one of the, one of the things that the airplane has that, that helps it is that it's all set in airports and offices and on planes, which are all kind of synthetic environments and it's easy to kind of match up those environments and make everything look cohesive whereas this is just kind of all over the place it, it wants to be all sorts of different things with all sorts of different setups and settings and, and tone and stuff you know you've got that ridiculous skeet shooting thing at the beginning which looks yeah, yeah. kind of cheap it's and shoddy in... and doesn't feel particularly warm and sunny in California yeah, no. it's shot in Cornwall wasn't it I didn't know that but you can kind of tell Mm. to look at it and it doesn't really hang together visually you say the sumptuous looking ballroom but it's not photographed particularly sumptuously it all looks quite flat and overlit and yeah there's some nice blocking there though where the camera's sort of gliding through all the dancers there's there's quite a lot of nice technique in there but the point of the film is like those one-liners and the visual gags are what you're there for and the rest of it is just to sort of prop you up from gag to gag i'm, I'm very forgiving no i agree i can i can see that's what they're going for but the actual end result is quite off-putting visually there there's there's times in the movie particularly early on where a handful of gags in a row aren't working or it's a bit kind of thin and then you would fall back on just the kind of comfort of things looking good or feeling yeah, competent and sometimes it does just feel a bit rickety and not in a yeah, good way that, I think by the time you get to that last musical number in the Das Pizza Hausen, mm. by, by then it, yeah, it's starting to grind a little bit isn't it? It's only the next sequence that sort of brings it back up. The raid on the castle where mm. they... Um, yeah, the final raid. Their master, yeah, yeah, implement their master plan to rescue the professor. And I think I'll I'll get all my bitching and complaints out of the way before I start praising it. I mean, that's that's part of the reason I think it it wasn't a hit. Um, I think the other reason is that the tone is all over the place. And again, you know, you you expect a movie like this to have silly digressions and go off in crazy directions, but with, like with Airplane as well. There's only there's a few kind of like diversions early on. We have a disco scene and a couple of flashbacks, but other than that, it's mm -hmm. pretty consistent in tone. And I think this you you start feeling like you're in a Second World War film with the fight on top of the train and all that stuff, um, and the Cold War generals who look exactly like Nazi generals in a, in a <laughs> yeah, captured it, yeah. castle. It, what it feels like is somebody that hasn't done enough research. <laughs> <laughs> They've just kind of taken a, a load of tropes and chucked it in the blender and crossed their fingers you know watching it as a 11 year old you're le much less critical mm. and i think you know that's that's the level that they're making films at and for and i think you know that's you just have to kind of accept, accept that okay, okay i won't labor the point but then you then you jump around to that excruciating skeet shooting thing which isn't catchy and it isn't funny and it isn't no, particularly it's terrible, it's really flat you're just waiting for it to finish 
Yeah, yeah, that's painful. And then you kind of jump back into what feels like it could be present day, but then sort of isn't because you have Nazi generals coming aboard the train, this sort of thing. Mm. So you never really know when it's set. And again, the fact that it's supposed to be set in present day and Nick Rivers' records are like like literally visually the the album sleeves are straight yeah, out sure. of 1958 or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's purely for 11-year-olds. I think it is sort of for an adult audience because it's rated 15 or double yeah. A back then, but I think there's there's a couple of gags that have pushed the rating up, haven't they? I think, <laughs> I think the rest of it's pretty. It's like it's juvenile. That's you know the thought behind it is juvenile. The execution is juvenile, and the humor is juvenile. Mm. You know, one thing it reminded me of while I was watching it, it felt like this film was the only reference for Tarantino when he made Inglorious Bastards because <laughs> so much of Inglorious Bastards feels like it's this film. It was so mad, you know, from the roll call on the uh, the crazy resistance fighters to the way the Germans are presented and the, the big kind of opulent offices that they've occupied, you know. It just felt like, oh my God, this is all Tarantino watched before he made Inglorious Bastards. You should spread that rumour further and this that, that would completely legitimise top secret You'd have a million Tarantino fans that say, oh yeah, Tarantino referenced Top Secret. Top Secret must be a classic. It's a stone cold classic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it in a triple bill at my 35mm only cinema this weekend. Ooh. <laughs> so, I mean, what was your impression then? Because it sounds like you were laughing at the gags, but frustrated by the, well, the no. filmmaking. First time around, I was just laughing at the gags all the way through because I'm not a frustrated professor and I wasn't kind of analyzing it as I was watching it but <laughs> but I was getting that background tone it was kind of dampening my my memory of it can I put it that way I was thoroughly enjoying it and laughing my head off all the way through but you think back on it and in your mind you're just like yeah but why isn't that landing in my memory properly and then I watched it a second time around to make notes it's just like yeah some of this is quite rickety when you look at it closely quite quite rickety in a bad way I think the film would land <laughs> a lot better if it it just felt better made what do you think so i've just talked for about 25 minutes yeah no i i guess you know i think this is sort of my handicap for being critical of films is that there's some bad films that i just forgive because my, my memory of enjoying them as a child or as a you know a young adult is so pure mm. so when i look at top secret i I give up on the story and how convoluted it is and, you know, the performances and all of that stuff. And I just I just sit there waiting for my favourite gags to come around again and get to the end and I'm, I feel very satisfied. I don't classify it as a bad movie. I don't think it needs forgiving in any way. I think it's a really, really good movie because it does exactly what it has to do and it does it really, really well. I think it's a bit of a shame that it's it doesn't have that extra polish. And I do think it's that lack of polish that I think put a lot of people off at the time. Isn't it supposed to be, you know, there's that uh, American TV show Hogan's Heroes that had like, you know, the sets were kind of, it was the same set over and over again. And it was just mm. rattling and shaking as they were trying to trying to record, you know, it's supposed to be that level of shoddiness. There's an irony to it, I think. <laughs> but yeah, it was maybe lost has been lost throughout its entire existence because of you know filmmakers were born in the 40s and 50s so the things that they're referencing you know there's jokes in it that <laughs> i have to google the person that they're making jokes about like mel torme i was like who the hell is mel torme <laughs> i had to like stop it and google that and there's the thing about 
one of the catalogues, you know, I think there's... Yeah, there's there's a handful of very specific jokes, isn't there? There's like Ripple Blanc, which I had to look up. And, yeah, um, I had to look that pin, up. Pinto Cars as well. Yeah, that's it. So I think, you know, these were older guys making a movie for a younger audience. And I think maybe that, you know, it's, it's that. that. There's the kind of the discrepancy between filmmaker and audience mm. is, is a generation. I think we're both in the same boat here, haven't we? We've just got a list of gags that, that we liked or ga- gags that fell flat in sequential order that also have actors <laughs> working alongside. So we have the opening scene with uh, Omar Sharif fighting Sergeant Kruger on top of a train. And Sergeant Kruger stands up just as they uh, approach the tunnel for the traditional villain getting knocked off the top of the train by the the tunnel. And instead, he just smashes through the tunnel and Mm. comes out the other side with a, you know, there's like a Nazi-shaped hole in the train tunnel. (laughs) And, I, you know, my kids were laughing at that. I was like grinning you know the the same joy that I've had at that gag for like thirty years. So yeah, I I just think like those visual moments in this film they're like they're, they're such a pleasure. I don't, I don't pick up until significantly later. All right, okay. So, so what's your next one? Uh, so then we see I like you know there's another gag where uh, the Nazi messenger drives up on his motorbike to Nazi high command and then just ties the yeah there's a running like, gag oh, about bikes as horses isn't bikes there? as horses yeah <laughs> those things that, like they so I, stupid I'm proper tickled by that stuff <laughs> I think it really works we see uh, Warren Clark who has a nice kind of like continued presence in the first half mm. then just disappears but also there's the scene where the messenger comes up to the the general and takes off his helmet but his chin strap stays in place so while he's talking the chin strap from his helmet is just still there like those are the little moments you know the giant telephones the giant watches you know all of those little things those are the things that like keep me giggling all the way through this you know where plot and character and performance all fail mm. their little visual ticks and the fact that it's all optical you know that's that's what it keeps me giggling all the way through this yeah but yeah i think next we get skeet surfing which is excruciating isn't it yeah well the one I think, let's just get it out of the way now i think mm. all of the musical numbers in this absolutely fall flat on their ass and they all seem to run for about four or five minutes as yeah well. they're really over over long aren't they and i think that's only to get the running time up <laughs> because yeah. you know there isn't anything else really to pad it out but it's it's really bad i'm reminded there used to be apparently I, I have heard at some point there used to be some loophole in, in BBC budgeting where if you included a musical number in a show, it it, it changed your classification for budget or something like that. So that's okay. why so many comedy shows, even throughout the 90s and 2000s, had a shit song in the middle of an otherwise very, very funny programme. Okay, and I'm okay. kind of reminded of that, where you just have to, to sit through five minutes of this dross to get back yeah. to the main program yeah definitely yeah skeet surfing is pretty bad i don't mind the one in the gay schlufen but yeah then uh there's his actual concert which goes on and on is really labored yeah and then the one in das pizza hutten <laughs> i think is that's terrible it's it's that's the weirdest one because the, by that point in the yeah. film you think surely all this is behind you you know there's no excuse for another song but it would be good if it was like uh you know like a weird al yankovic or something a song that really is you know sparkly and fascinating but it's that last one is pick up a rug or something isn't it i think the the the, the suicidal one the one that he performs at his concert 
does seem to be trying to be funny with all the visual gags about suicide. Yeah, yeah. But again, that that comes in the second half of the song, and it's they're so laboured and yeah, yeah. Anyway, breezing on. Yeah, breezing on. All right, so I'm just listing like I've got funny. Uh, in the skeet surfing sequence, two shots that really made my kids laugh. Breast shot. So it's got to be. The breast shot, yeah, which is a classic. Yeah. Um, my little boy was just like, boobies. <laughs> and I think, but you can imagine, like, that's Abrahams and Zucker just going, boobies, while they're, while they're shooting. And then the old lady that's in the mix running down towards the beach with her shotgun. They were just like, look, it's an old lady. Like, I never even fun. saw that. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a, a really quite a nice shot of, like, uh, 30 people running down the beach in, in a line. And the camera's kind of tracking back and revealing more and more people. Mm. And there's an old granny in there with a shotgun. Um, and then we get uh what do we get next the talk about the cultural festival as a diversionary plan this is all the plotting to you know have a nuclear mine to blow up the allied fleet or something and the resurgence of the uh the reich um we see nick and his manager on a train the manager's reading the daily oppressor where <laughs> 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 he's like and nick's doing that painting out of the window and it's just all blurry mm. like those those little gags i think that they could have just ditched all the dialogue and gone for like a purely visual silent movie treatment that would have been really nice i just want to do a little shout out to the guy who plays his manager billy j mitchell oh, yeah. he's good he yeah. gets a lot of really really well i don't say gets it but he just he's got some really really nice bits of business there's, there's, there's a little bit where he kind of trails off at the end of a sentence and then just leaves it yeah, his reaction shots are really good as yeah, well. Yeah, he plays it just right. He's kind of straight, yeah. but but funny with it. Yeah, there's the thing later on where uh, Nick's in prison and he's saying to him, you know, I've spoke to the cultural atta- attaché, I've spoke to the diplomat, blah blah blah. He's out. He's can't bring my wife to orgasm. <laughs> but I think this is this is my first. Um, this is the first one on my excellent list. Is the whole thing with the All station right. platform? And Have we already had uh, stuff off your shit list with um, skeet surfing. In fact, I've only got the songs on the appalling list. Oh, um, okay. The bad list consists of there's not that many kind of bad jokes. I didn't I didn't list any of the good jokes, which are just good jokes. Yeah, okay. Like just you know, ones that didn't make me absolutely crack up, but are still quite good. But I kind of gave up with the bad jokes. The ones that I didn't like, I didn't like much of the stuff with Omar Sharif. Um, yeah, okay. I didn't like. I know a little German. Um, <laughs> you didn't like a little German. It's over there. <laughs> Uh, the Nutcracker Suite, that whole oh, that's stage thing with the yeah. appalling opticals. Yeah, yeah. A couple a, of shots where they zoom in like zoom 50% in, yeah. on, on 35mm film and it just looks terrible. Um, and I mean, that that's so juvenile, that sequence, and so flat and yeah. Yeah. But I did like um, all the chaos that ensues at the end of that scene. Did you see the old couple having sex in the audience? Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> I thought that's where Kruger had landed, and then I was like, "Oh, is that what that is?" <laughs> yeah, I only noticed it on this on this last viewing for making notes. I was like, "Is that oh, really? Okay. Is that really happening?" Um, and then I thought the pigeon statue joke was funny, but the poopy at the end was just uh, that just had to happen, didn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. It was, was funny sat- enough as as just a joke with a giant pigeon statue with little people on it, but having it do poopy. I was sat between two kids. Um, that sequence so that was like a, a moment when they were pointing at the screen going look look as the people came flying down and then when it did a massive poo at the end they were in hysterics so <laughs> i think i think that's the target target <laughs> for demographic that for that specific gag 
But I kind of gave up being curmudgeonly after that. I haven't got any more on the list. <laughs> oh, that's, that's kind of you. So we're on your first of your good gags. First of my excellent gags was excellent the, gags. the entire sequence on the train. Well, the end of the train sequence where the um, train appears to pull off, but it's actually the oh, platform no, pulling so off. So good, isn't it? So and then good. you take that step into like Monty Python-ness with a businessman running after it to catch it. Yeah. And then another aside later on, which is which is completely irrelevant, but you just see another businessman running to catch a tree. <laughs> this yeah, tree in the jumps same on, way. doesn't he? Yeah, it's so good. I love that sequence. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my next one is the map, the kind of like adventure movie map showing your route from, from England to to East Germany. Is this set? Yeah, set in East Germany. Uh, is it East Berlin? East Berlin. But then and... the, the, the map and the route that gets increasingly elaborate with more and more sound effects. and Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> just... and then it just devolves into pac-man <laughs> such a nice gag uh, and then we get the uh i don't know if, if i'm bullet pointing like things that make me laugh like that east german women's olympic team handing out keys to the city i think that's that's maybe dated but still mm-hmm. an excellent gag oh my god yeah so i think uh we're in danger of um just doing a line by line gag by gag reminiscence of top secret so maybe if we structure it in into the acts first act second third yeah and and try and be a bit disciplined with it and not just go off on some sprawling bad comedy recital i'll tell you what's funny about this film is that something i've noticed over the years is that a lot of movies are far far more interesting in their first and second acts and succeed a lot better and i guess maybe try oh, yeah. harder than in their third act oh my god i watched stripes the other day and i was like again i was like ah this was really good when i was a kid you know i remember there being loads of laughs and it gets two-thirds of the way through and then it just dies like the third act is so boring this Mm. kind of faux military uh incursion into foreign lands and this weird rv that's armed to the teeth and it becomes very much about like american superior firepower and it just sort of yeah, the... I mean, I've not seen that, but that, that, from what you said, it sounds like like the problem that I have. I mean, it's not a big thing. It's just it's just like a vague dropping off of flavour. I find it's more interesting the setup a lot of time, and then when the gears start grinding for the third act, it just kind of motors through and stops showing you interesting things. Yeah, because it's, it's like... more in the process of just finishing off what it's set up. Yeah, that's it. It's kind of obliged to try and make all of the setup pay off and. Mm especially if you've got a cold war or military setup then it's going to have to be something quite grand isn't it to yeah just justify the uh initial engagement but i find Invest- almost almost subconsciously even with films I, that I really like and if i was to put my mind to there'd probably be quite a few favorites of mine that have that have still dropped off in that way mm-hmm. and i think it's ones that you remember really really that you that you're really impressed by you'll find they don't do this that they don't kind of fall off in that way. But this movie is the exact opposite. I find it takes a while to warm up, and I find if you break it into three acts, the first act is by far, and this is drawing boxes around all the gags in my list, by far more entertaining and more solid in the third act, which is weird because it is still doing that thing, isn't it? It's still just, you know, everything starts to escalate and it has to finish up the story. But They do escalate the gags as well, so you do get, like, some quite elaborate set pieces and elaborate kind of visual 
treats and tricks in the third act and you know it does get a bit even more puerile as well in places so yeah i, I think uh i agree with you <laughs> so the first act deals with nick an american musician who's been invited to the uh diversionary tactic of a cultural exhibition and he's replacing is it leonard bernstein who yeah. couldn't couldn't make it and so i mean that's the gag right it's just uh, a fish out of water and, a, and a, a young naive american rock star coming behind the iron curtain and uh, getting embroiled in some nonsensical mm. should we can we talk about val kilmer at this stage maybe yeah yeah let's talk about this... he looks beautiful doesn't he? he looks he's got beautiful smile sparkly eyes yeah he's just as he's just he's a live weird character-free void in this movie though <laughs> yeah um and it, it did raise larger questions for me, larger Val Kilmer-based questions. Oh, yeah, okay. Which are, you know, Val Kilmer is is not somebody I ever look out for. And if he appears in something that looks otherwise good, I'll say, well, okay. You know, he must, he must have some... You know, when he, when he was cast in Heat, oh, yeah. which is way back now, 25 years ago, but I yeah, remember yeah. thinking at the time, well, okay, he must have some hidden depths that I wasn't otherwise aware of. Yeah, sure. But again, looking back at him in that, I think, there's a lot of other actors could have done the same with the role. Yeah, it'd be nice someone had brought a bit more soul to it. Yeah. Um, but in this, which is his, his abs- complete debut, it's odd. In this first act, you should be kind of building... I mean, I guess you could argue against everything I'm about to say and just say, you know, in the name of comedy, you don't need to do that. But you should possibly be building a character that you care about and has some interest in something or some thoughts or but he's just a complete <laughs> void it's just this kind of yeah, display yeah. of non-acting and, and non-charisma do you think that's what it is do you think it's methods like he's deliberately going out of his way to play like a an insular rock star that's been kind of brought up in the, the music business and just doesn't have any connection to the outside world or, or do you think it's just a no i just think it's a it's a, an, an unwritten character with uh, a, an actor who hasn't really got anything to bring to it. I mean, he's not mm. bad in any way. It's just, it's just weird watching it. And you get to the end of the movie, I, I, I know nothing. This character has actually done nothing in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Like he has no agency at all. He just kind of yeah, drifts yeah. from set piece to set piece, and he's really flat. Isn't he? Occasionally participates, but doesn't actually change the course of events in any way. Mm. Um, it's very strange. Yeah. How do you? Nice. How, are you a Val Kilmer? Oh, well, you know, I've seen him in things. I don't... He's never on my list of actors to follow their career. You know, mm. I hope he's okay. I know he's been ill recently, so I hope he's okay. I like him in uh, Top Gun, um, Tombstone. I had to go back because he seems always to have been there. And then when you realise that this is his first movie, you think, okay, well, this is a starting point. At what point between this and, let's say, well... That was the thing. I couldn't put my finger on at what point he became a star. Well, maybe The Doors. Maybe that was a big one. Yeah. But even at that point, he was kind of around, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I had to go back and kind of go through his filmography and think, okay, I mean, I've never seen Top Gun more than 25 minutes in. I always just get bored and switch off. And this is going back to when I was a teenager. And that's not a point of pride. It's just an observation. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I just can't get into it. So I didn't know that he was in that. So you see that in the list, you think, yeah, that must have that must have been memorable for for, for a few people back then. He must they must have known him from that. Yeah, and he then, was really good in that, and he plays like 
what do you call it? It's the antithesis of the crew's character, and then they eventually become buddies by the end. It's good. It's nice. It's a nice little arc. And then, really, I don't know. I mean, I saw him in. Obviously, he has that nice cameo in True Romance. And then he was in that David Mamet film. Oh, Spartan. Spartan, yeah. Which yeah. felt like it was going to be incredible and was really boring. And I think that was, that's the last time I tracked down the Val Kilmer film. That was the, f- the first half was really good, wasn't it? And then mm-hmm. just kind of goes nowhere. Yeah, so I guess you have Val Kilmer, as you say, kind of sparkling and twinkling. I can't get beyond his kind of amiable smile and his hair. Yeah. can't get any deeper into it than that but maybe that's the intention and the first act is basically yeah him kind of stumbling into various complicated political situations and by the end of the first act he's kind of ended up in prison by these germans <laughs> is there anything within that first act that you want to highlight specifically i mean the the sort of main plot points are when hillary comes into the story the damsel in distress that he sort of rescues at the ball and then for that gag when they're trying to escape and um, they go into the prop room and look out of the window and they look down at the street and there's all those cars with the little yeah, mice like a running shot. in between. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But do you know where that model shot is from? They were rooting around in the cupboards at Pinewood and Shepperton when they found this old set that had been built already. So they just picked it up, took it onto the studio and shot it. I'm guessing, is it Superman the movie? It's, it's Superman. <laughs> so that shot is from Superman. No, that set, that little model yeah. miniature is from Superman. Oh, excellent. So, yeah, that's. So I think just think that's a nice little bit of trivia. You know, this yeah. idea, you know, if you've been to Pinewood or Shepperton, those kind of storerooms that are just full of, like, junk and bits and bobs and hidden in there was, like, bits from Superman. They make really good use of the accidentals from that, haven't like one of the mice comes legging it onto the set and smashes into the others and they use the car crash sets. And by the end of Act One, um Nick's been imprisoned, um, which has got which leads to quite possibly my favourite easily one of my top favourite gags in this and in anything ever. <laughs> yeah, it's just sure. the completely unexpected dream sequence when he's being tortured and whipped and passes out and then it, it kind of dissolves into this dream sequence where it's it's just your classic anxiety dream where he's back at school yeah. finds that the terms just ended and he never revised and, and never studied for his exams, exams yeah. and missed everything and then um comes to during the torture and and is perfectly happy because being tortured is is easier than the anxiety dream but it's i mean it's it sounds sounds tortuous in my description but it's just so unexpected and so brilliant yeah yeah it's funny we're moving into the second act, which the second act is just about Nick and Hillary getting to know each other and to sort of expand a little bit on the plot such as it is. Yeah, and connecting with the Resistance, which are, who were all the supporting players for the big fight at the end. We do meet Hillary's dad, don't we? Um, oh, Paul Flamond. Yeah, played yeah. by... Michael Goff. Michael Goff. Played Alfred to Kilmer's Batman. Ah, not having seen that Batman movie, I didn't know that, but I've... Yeah. I've got a list of all the, the British actors who were on hand when this production arrived <laughs> yeah, in the UK. Yeah. got Ian McNeese, who's the joke peddler, who um, was just making his mark at that point. Yeah. Um, souvenirs, novelties, party tricks. Yeah. Not my favourite bit. Uh, yeah, but that, Michael... that gag was, uh, at the end of that sequence, was one of, like, my gang. It was our, one of our gags. You dropped your phony dog poo. What phony dog poo? Like, that silly gag. <laughs> That ran for about three years with me and my mates. In the Navy? <laughs> no, it's in school, in school. 
Um, yeah, so you got Michael Goff, but a lot, you know, a lot of these guys can just literally turn up and phone it in and still be yeah, perfect. Yeah. Actually, like note perfect for everything. I love John Sharp, the uh, guy that plays the Maitre D. He's like doesn't even know what accent he's supposed to be doing. He's just like, yeah, I don't know. There's so many faces in this now. You know, you're watching everything. Oh, it's him. Oh, it's him. Yeah, oh, yeah. it's him. Jeremy Kemp and Jim Carter as Deja Vu. Any gags you want to dwell on from Act Two? The ongoing joke about bikes being horses again, when yeah, they yeah. steal a couple of bicycles on their on their when they're running away. And, yeah, yeah. and chase off the remaining bicycles who kind of flee like startled horses. I mean, going back to the the point I was trying to make earlier about those tiny little background details that really keep me giggling all the way through this. In that sequence, there's a sign up on the wall that just says "Emergency Exit." <laughs> <laughs> like those things, I think to have gone to that kind of detail, uh, that's uh, yeah, that's where, that's where my joy is <laughs> with this film is looking around the background. I guess we're coming up to the scene which absolutely everyone remembers and kind of defines the movie, really, and it's it's the best visual gag, isn't it? It's the Swedish bookstore. Yeah, so good. It's oh, my God. flawless. It gives you a headache as you're watching it, trying to work out how it was choreographed and how many takes yeah, they yeah. must have had to do. Yeah, that's it. I think when I was a kid, we just sort of realised that it was backwards, you know, and that when they go up the uh, the fireman's pole, mm. as you get older and you're looking at it and you see like the blocking and the sort yeah. of reverse performances, and you realise all the dialogue had to be kind of learned backwards and like nothing about the action of making that sequence would have made any sense. So how <laughs> how beautiful it is because it's just yeah, like you say, flawless. You already beat me to the best word. <laughs> But there's there's little incidental pleasures in it as well. Like you can see either Val Kilmer's clearly enjoying it. Yeah, he looks or, really happy. Or, or playing he? playing Nick as enjoying it, or he's rubbing his hands and grinning as he's throwing the books up on the shelf. Yeah, yeah. And preparing himself for the next one. Yeah, and I think Peter Cushing is pretty funny in this, that, that where he takes them away the magnifying glass and he has that giant eye behind them. <laughs> to have sat God knows how long that poor old boy sat in makeup just for that one gag. But yeah, it's worth it. The Swedish bookstore sequence. If you go on YouTube, somebody's put it in reverse order so you can watch it. Okay. Back, back to front, front to back. Mm. It's a nice kind of aside. I've got another one circled immediately afterwards, which was, which brings me to tears every time I see it. Um, the singing horse has just. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, you start with a wide shot and you see the the horse and the farmer and, you, and the big bale of hay and you just assume it's him singing along, and then you kind of the close up of the horse and. Not only does the horse look like it's singing, it looks like it's enjoying <laughs> singing. It's really good. And I don't even begrudge the terrible, terrible gag at the end. Is your horse yeah. ill? No, he's just a little horse. You arrive at the potato farm and yeah. meet the French resistance, who all have ridiculous but quite funny names. Yeah, it's really, it's a really good roll call, isn't it? Which again reminded me of Inglorious Bastards. Duquois, introduce the American to the men. Very well. This is Chevalier, Montage, Détente, Avant-Garde, and Déjà-Vu. Have we not met before, monsieur? I don't think so. Yeah, the first lot is just kind of like random French words, and then the second lot is all foods and foodstuffs, isn't it? <laughs> so. Au vaser, croissant, soufflé. Escargot, chocolate mousse. Mm. 
Yeah, I think uh, I love, um, obviously I love Deja Vu, but the one that always makes me laugh is Montage. <laughs> I think that's such a great name for a character, Montage. And we meet Nigel, don't we? Nigel, who we'd been previously introduced in a flashback for Hillary. It was a lost love. They'd been on a desert island. Mm. Is it the Blue Lagoon? It's supposed yeah. to be a parody of that, I think. Very, very much so. Yeah. But with child actors, so we, we now meet Christopher Villiers as, as Nigel, who gives such an amazingly good performance. He's it's just so petulant just and English. Stays, even even his it, eyes are yeah. petulant and childish and spiteful. Yeah, but there's some great kind of like camp sexy moments too when, when he's in the cow, which <laughs> are just really believable. He's one of those kind of like staple British actors, been around for years, been in everything and... Mm just has had like a solid long career i think everyone everyone british in this is the same with everyone just <laughs> yeah, kind true, of like true. powered through for decades yeah yeah holding on fingers on the cliff <laughs> i wouldn't say that they've probably all got very comfortable houses in chiswick and a second yeah, home in true. the country that's true those were the days <laughs> um so one thing i really liked about the reveal on nigel being the torch the leader of the resistance is when he comes out the door for the big reveal he's still in his desert island costume from the flashback <laughs> which i don't know that gag always lands i think just think that's that's a brilliant reveal and his hair is exactly the same and it's just so funny because she looks obviously completely different he reminds me of um obviously he's kind of like a spoiled english boy he reminds me of that kid and i i can't honestly be bothered googling his name do you remember the little kid um yeah, who was yeah. on tv in the late 80s who fancied yeah. himself as a genius <laughs> yeah that's it he was like a um uh an expert in antiques wasn't he yes and he was very... on blue peter and all of those things. yeah and on on this morning and stuff like that i think keith allen made a documentary about him about 10 years ago that's still out there yeah i keep trying Lord to find Fulton that on Roy. youtube because uh, i watched it at the time and it was it was it was bad, but it was good car crash documentary filmmaking. Yeah, but it was kind of sympathetic to him as well because he was just like, yeah, I was I was blagging it. I, basically, if I didn't know an antique, I would always say 13th century or something because <laughs> most of the antiques that people wheel out are from the 13th century. So the third act is basically an incredible, just non-stop barrage of good big gags and good small gags and asides and observations, and I think. For somebody who can often get exhausted by comedy, I find it difficult to sit through an hour of stand-up because after half an hour, I'm just kind of detaching a bit. Yeah, sure. It's it's remarkable that, you know, an hour into this movie, I'm so warmed up and it just keeps giving and giving and giving that I feel there's some magic at work in this third act, which which heightens every single gag. Even things yeah, that, that had they cropped up in the in the first first act would have been less impressive. There's just so much momentum going on here that... Yeah, I mean, but the, again, go back to some of the optical gags, you know, uh, uh, trying to avoid just listing them off because that also sterilizes the film somewhat. But Nigel looking through the binoculars and we see his point of view <laughs> of the cows in the field and it's one of those traditional binocular cutout optical Yeah, in intersecting circles. And then uh, the cows leap over it as if it's a gate and they walk past it and it's just like that's incredible yeah. because you know the filmmaker in us all it's like 
So what have they done? They've built a giant POV, you know, set it up in a field, got the cows to step through it just for that one throwaway second. I'm just like, it's, I, it's I applaud them for that. Yeah. yeah. Nigel's elaborate model plan for the raid. Yeah. <laughs> again, just... <laughs> Again, I was watching it with my kids, and like as that pulled out and just got bigger and bigger, he was like, "Wow, they brought in a pretty impressive model with them to go through the plan." And I was like, "Yeah, that's the gag. It's really good." And even you know when they sound the alarm and you see all the the vehicles thundering around the curve, and then it pull the camera just pulls out, zooms out a little bit, and you see that they're just driving in a circle. It's like that's so funny. What astonishes me as well is. Um they dress up in a cow outfit yeah. to blend in with a herd of cows that can then get them through the gate into the castle grounds. But I still don't understand it, watching it for a second time to make notes, how even innocuous shots that don't actually have a visual gag can be so funny. Yeah, I don't yeah. know it's just if it's just the audacity of having this stupid-looking fake cow costume and yeah, then yeah. cut to a cow in wellies. A real cow. A real with cow with wellies. painted on it, wearing wellies, yes. Yeah, so Becoming funny. the character. But then point of view shots for the cow with voiceover. Yeah, Just yeah. the juxtaposition of those two is somehow very, very funny. And they keep cutting inside to the, the two guys inside yeah. the cow as well. It's like, that's bonkers. As, as a sequence, that is bonkers. Yeah, but it works perfectly in every single mm. shot in it. Even things that are seemingly innocuous and shouldn't be funny. Are funny. The safe, the safe cracking thing where you just see the cow's head <laughs> with the uh, stethoscope in, but it's he's smoking because he's concentrating on the. Uh... But the the movement of the cow's head is just spot on for it as well. Yeah, it's really good. And he puffs out the smoke. <laughs> it's just like what? There's the the weird and fairly obvious sexual gags where a calf turns up and starts um, suckling. suckling on Nigel. <laughs> yeah. Again, he's he brilliant. Nails though, the camp it? performance, doesn't he? Yeah. The, the kind of enjoy why was in such a bloody hurry <laughs> so good and then at the end of it there's the inevitable bull turns up and that weird kind of 80s trope of if you dress up in an animal costume you'll get fucked by an animal <laughs> which is in yeah. trading places as well but it's all it's all funny yeah i mean they're so pleasurable aren't they some of these gags you know i think probably the slightly flattest sequence is the motorcycle chase with um where Nick catches up with Nigel. I do like the Roadrunner. Yeah, and well, they do it as a kind of silent movie thing, don't they? The sort of fight sequence and the reactions. Oh, and... yeah, yeah, the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark thing, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the uh, motorcycle stunts are done by Eddie Kidd. Remember Eddie Kidd? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so that's him. Eddie high Kidd, flying the, Eddie Kidd. the high point of a lot of um, like local country fairs around yeah, the UK. Yeah. But he did a... Um, a motorcycle battle, shall we call it, with Evil Knievel's son, and he won that. He was, uh, you know, he's a, he's a legend of motorcycle stunts in the 70s and 80s. Okay. And then we kind of go through, uh, I mean, these things happen one after another and amazing jokes and everything. Um, the underwater fight seems like a like a diversion and seems just like a, a like a slight digression. And you feel that when you come out of it, it's brilliant, by the way, but you yeah, feel that really when you good. come out of it, the film's actually going to, the conflict's going to be resolved another way. But then you realise that is actually the the conflict resolution. Yeah, that's that is the Nigel, fight between the good guy and the bad guy. Yeah, is yeah that once joke. he gets punched out of the window, yeah, he's gone, <laughs> yeah. isn't he? We never see him again. And then within seconds, the film's over. You yeah, get the, yeah. The amazing um, goodbye scene, um, mm -hmm. which is the the one joke that I actually remembered most strongly from my first view, my first viewing, 
Is that, oh, okay. I'll, I'll miss you most of all, Scarecrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For some reason, that's the one that stuck with me since the mid-80s. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really good. <laughs> and then the film's over. Yeah, that's it. Um, which kind of brings me to something that, that Zucker and Zucker and Abrams said in the interview that I saw um, recently where they were talking about their career. And they kind of touched on this and they said one of the problems this film had the reason that it didn't succeed is that it didn't really have a story and characters as such i mean no matter how tenuous you have to set up characters and a story and care about them and have it resolve whereas this was just basically gag after gag after gag yeah it doesn't really have that thread i think maybe there's something in the casting of val kilmer as nick because it feels like nick should be one of those kind of bimbo characters that he's just is totally out of his depth and everything happens without any kind of input from him he's just dragged along basically and he should just be completely oblivious to these world-changing events that he's somehow been drawn into but there's something about his the i don't know the slight arrogance and confidence to his performance that throws that off you know he almost needed to be less charming and you know more sort of glass-eyed he's almost there but there's something in Kilmer's performance that is kind of like cocky and cocksure Mm. and he almost needs to be like much more a simple simpleton and the film just ends doesn't it it's just kind of oh and that was it you're expecting yeah they get on the plane and they go yeah yeah um did you watch the credits all the way through no are they good um there's a couple of those um typical uh quirky credits there's one where it says four e's and then on the right it says a jolly good fellow you know and there's a few <laughs> of those kind of gags uh but then there's a reprise there's a musical number in the last minute where val kilmer and the quartet come up and they uh, they sing us out of the theater mm. so there's a, another musical number that you missed you dodged a bullet as they say whereas the age-old question would you recommend it and who to like i said a uh, sent a copy to a friend who just was like thanks for that it was shit but then i sat with my kids and watched them like laughing at especially the kind of optical stuff i think you have to see it young enough that your cynicism doesn't tarnish your experience of the gags <laughs> i i would recommend it without hesitation it's a difficult film to warm warm to because it doesn't know what it is for its first act you know it's all over the place but I don't know. I think there's enough funny stuff in there that, that anybody who's got a sense of humour should get something out. I mean, there is literally something for everyone every five yeah, minutes. Yeah.